This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Flawed Perception. Film Noir 101. Bomb Me. And The Babylon Working. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Ken and Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted, wood-paneled confines of the gaming hut. But did the dice really clatter? Did the miniatures really thump? Is it really Peter Frampton? Is it really Peter Frampton? And if so, is his gaze really benevolent or merely some sort of airbrushed 70s rock and roll beneficence captured by photographic trickery because we are in a flawed perception edition of the gaming hut. Peter Frampton's eyes are glowing at me, Ken. No, they're not. That's just a reflection because of terrible lighting conditions in the 1970s. Uh, also, the, the I'm album sure covers. glowing. No, the album is faded. The album is normal. It is you who are glowing. Ah! So, yes, we're here to talk about flawed perceptions. in, uh, And this is inspired by uh, Brian's question. Uh, Patreon backer Brian, who wants us to sort of kick off from a film called They Look Like People, which you loved and I liked, mm-hmm. and is all about a character who thinks that there are demons all around him. And uh, I guess we're going to turn that into looking at uh, a campaign based on the idea that is everybody's uh, in the party uh, has flawed perceptions, or is it more interesting, he says, uh, hinting as to what his opinion is, to have uh, one or two members of the group who are seeing the demons or the aliens or the interdimensional what-have-yous, and then other members who are not. Ken, how would you uh, go about turning the idea of subjective awareness into a fun and interesting, presumably horror, campaign? Well, I mean, first of all, let's say that you don't have to make it a campaign. It can be a single episode or adventure or thing that happens to a character in the course of a of a standard uh, Trail of Cthulhu or Call of Cthulhu adventure that they eat some goo or get exposed to radiation or uh, their pineal gland hits the ultraviolet just right. And then they have, to their uh, certain belief, 
a expanded sense of the universe and see demons everywhere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if it's a Trail of Cthulhu game, what you probably have is a character who is just writer than the other characters, which means that it's more of a ongoing sanity loss and the role of the players then is to convincingly role-play people who do not believe in ultraviolet monsters, even though, of course, it says Cthulhu right on the cover, there are probably ultraviolet monsters out there getting ready to eat everyone. Right. As soon as you announce that it's Trail, yeah. you're sort of making people, uh, you're showing what the conclusion is going to be. Right. Now, I suppose you could do a fake-out and uh, get out your Trail book and set it up, and the answer in your mind is, in fact, that the the subjective awareness is incorrect, uh, and that would be a, a great way to trick people into thinking that there are Cthulhu creatures and acting like there are, and then uh, all meeting a horrible end as a result. But I think that particular one would lead people to think that they had been cheated, yes, robbed of their desired might uh, tentacles. Be the, the description on the label did not match the interior of the tin, and it would anger them. I think the really uh, productive place to do this is... In likewise and simultaneously, in a say a, a superheroes game, a champions style game uh, that is based on a sort of you know orthodoxy, not just of, of play style or of genre, but of really of sort of the moral workings of the universe, is if your character suddenly begins believing that everyone around him, including Hawkman, is a demon, then he's uh, been cursed somehow by the Joker, and you have to get the Joker venom out of him, and there's no suspense. So what you want to do to play this is play it in a game where it might be true, but it might not. And so that, I think, is sort of a Knight's Black Agents, Ravenloft kind of a world where, yes, the occult exists, yes, there's bad things going on, but it's not always the answer that everything is a million times worse than you thought it was. And that, and that I think, is sort of the territory in which this kind of game can can happen most it could maybe also happen in a science fiction game that is sufficiently wonkily around the edges that it might be true so you could probably do it in like eclipse phase and depending on the campaign you might could do it in ashen stars or do you think that the existence of a bunch of Voss Mall around means that you probably couldn't do it in ashen stars because they'd say we're pretty sure that there'd be those things unless you're suddenly deciding maybe the moholar are the um uh are are these uh, invisible demons that are everywhere? What do you what do you think about about the edges of this kind of campaign before we get into how to do right. it? Right, I think you've hit on it in that it would have to be something. The thing, the subjective reality has to be reality breaking, right? It has to be an an incredible threat to um, everything and sort of upend the character's conception of how the universe works. So unless it is, oh, it I think the Mohalar uh, are all around us. Uh, and the, without getting too much into it, in the Ashen Star setting, the Mohalar are the uh, alien enemy race, and there was a big war with them, and the consequence of the war is nobody remembers what happened except they know something terrible happened and that the good guys made some horrible, weird sacrifice in order to make that happen. And so the idea is if the Mohalar ever come back, that's your big potentially campaign-ending arc. So you could do that, but other than that, you know that it's a space opera world, and apparently supernatural things, demons, always turn out to be aliens. And the idea that there's an alien invasion, well, there's an alien sitting right next to me in the in the gunner station. Aliens are no big deal in that setting. You could also do it in fear itself, where it's not necessarily clear, if you're starting off a, a new game, whether this is the the real world with supernatural forces, 
or just a horror situation in which uh, there's a really demented real person. Where you, yeah. So kids, you can also do like slasher stories and mm -hmm. cannibal humans and so forth in, in fear itself. So that might also be a good uh, platform for that. So uh, aside from the issue of what game that you would use it in, and of course you could just say, oh, we're playing GURPS. Yeah. And it can be anything, right? Or, you know, HeroQuest if you need a less crunchy generic system so that it's not immediately clear to people what genre they're in. Uh, but you're just using a, a generic rule set. And so the question then becomes, what is the fun way to deal with this uh, issue at the table? So do we want to have only one character have flawed perceptions, or do we want to have like two of them have it and then the rest of the group, or maybe one of them starts out with it and the other... Uh, it starts to tip the scales when more than one person has it. You know that it's not just sort of a an ordinary uh, delusion or mental illness that one person is suffering from, but rather uh, there's something external going on. So you'd have to have some external explanation for why uh, multiple characters start seeing the world differently and consistently with one another. Or are they seeing it consistently? Would it be interesting to have one player who thinks it's demons and another who thinks it's aliens? Um, I think that the maximum number in this sort of situation can be two, right? That the first, the, the, the opening of the, of this game, whether it's a campaign or an, or a scenario is whatever is supposedly normally happening is normally happening. The first turn, the, the, the thing that opens up the game into, Oh, all right, this is what we're doing is one of the characters begins to see demons. Obviously in they look like people. It's a character who's been seeing demons forever is introduced, but you can't do that on a role playing game as easily. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess someone can suddenly join the game and it's like, oh, their character sees demons everywhere. That would be kind of weird. But, but you have suddenly it's like a thing happens and you don't might not even know what it is. You went into that warehouse and you came out and now you can see demons and, you know, investigating the warehouse turns up a bunch of maybe, I don't know, could be type information. But the, uh, but you have one character that sees it. Then the second character that sees demons for whatever reason, either because the first character, you know, convinced them to go into the warehouse alone or because they were trepanned by the first character or because, you know, they had some other thing happen to them. And then the question is, are they seeing the same demons? And you can play around with that. You know, how subjective is your subjective reality? Are you objectively agreeing on the subjective reality or do you see demons, um, uh, in all, um, uh, toddlers and in all people who have ice cream or are slightly colder than normal? And the other person sees demons in all women and, and all uh, wildlife, like birds and rats in the park are demons. And so it's like, no, no, you're wrong about the demons. They're here. No, no, you're wrong about the demons. They're here. That can be one way to play it. Or they can both see demons. And one of them says, I think it's actually alien mind rays because of my character's preconceptions to believe things. And then you can have that discussion. But if, if the third character starts seeing stuff, then it becomes an objective reality, I think, at the table, even if what it actually is is just a story of ongoing exposure to um, uh, to, to uh, VX gas, um, or their BX is what it is. I think it's a it's a variant of VX that causes people to confabulate uh, hallucina hallucinations. Another way that you could have uh, sort of justify that in real terms is just in the backstory, uh, there are two characters who were both independently... Uh, having what the other players will perceive as delusions, they got together. They have already, they already know each other. They've conferred their explanations for what is going on have merged with one another. So that still leaves the possible, uh, rational explanation being just that they were both 
suffering from uh, a chemical imbalance, and now they've gotten together and they've uh, agreed on what it is that they're seeing. And you could have the conceit be that as soon as one of the characters sees something and interprets it, that the other one then has to agree, and they have to incorporate that into their ever more elaborate discussion of what's uh, going on. And the reason to do two players instead of one, if you're doing this for more than one episode, is that increases the chances that at least one of them will show up for each uh, session. Um, and again, this might not matter so much uh, in a single session, but it's also, I think, more fun to spread the focus of being the one with the uh, sort of reality-driving perceptions uh, between two people rather than having one person get to hog all of that spotlight time. So what is our... Uh, how do our normal players uh, respond to that? I guess uh, another thing is that you could, before we get to that, that you could have some sort of covert way of communicating with the people with the flawed perceptions so they could have a Google Doc open on their tablets and then all of a sudden your text as you type in would appear in front of them and they so that your verbal descriptions to the entire group are of a supposedly objective reality and then you are simultaneously sending them what they see and then they get to describe it to everybody else and could even sort of start to add things on top of that if they really wanted. So how do we turn this into a forward-moving plot? What is the uh, impetus that requires the characters who see things objectively to want to do anything other than just, you know, check them into the nearest uh, mental health facility. Well, in the first case, you may be in a game uh, like a one-shot scenario where checking someone into the mental health facility takes them completely out of the world. You know that what's going to happen to them is electroshock or lots and lots of drug therapy or whatever, but they're not going to come out the same way that they came in. Uh, that you're basically taking that character who you knew and loved and consigning them to be remade. And, and that will work better in, you know, things that are set in the more barbaric past, or it might work in a world where you already suspect that the, the, the medical institution is, is run by vampires or whatever. So you don't want to necessarily, um, uh, uh, send them out to, to be checked up in much the same way that maybe you don't want to call the cops in a standard Cthulhu adventure, not necessarily because you don't think that it wouldn't be nice to have more people to, around to be eaten by the Shoggoth, but because in the genre and in the world, you don't want to get people eaten by Shoggoths. And, um, uh, you know, cops got better things to do than get killed, in the immortal words of Jack Burton. Right. So you have to set up a why don't you trust the authorities to deal with our friend's delusions. Right. Situation. And, of course, if you're playing a, a game that is um, uh, like Fear Itself, uh, more, you know, oriented toward, or a high mirror game of Knights of Black Agents that is oriented toward trust and betrayal, the characters may not willingly go to uh, an institution if the characters are putting them in. It's like, oh, no, no, you're just doing the bidding of the demons. You're not a demon yet, but if we don't, if we're not here, we're not here to protect you. So maybe they do try to commit them, and you're saying, okay, you two are Jason Bournes who have been committed to a uh, middling uh, mental health facility somewhere in Poland. What do you do? Oh, we break out. Excellent. And now, you're running, you know, these guys who are trying to get the their their friends to enter that warehouse so they understand about demons without, you know, getting themselves caught again. And you're running a, a PvP type game. Uh, obviously, the source material has a PvP, but it's a interpersonal PvP, very drama systemy, where you know each character wants something that the other one cannot give, and then they have to have a confrontation. And that is what drives the story. Right. I, I would want to posit that there is some goal for the objective reality characters that they uh, value more than they value the necessarily the long-term health of their subjective 
perceiving counterparts, uh, but they need them somehow to resolve. So they've both been through a Jason Bourne program. Their minds were, uh, in your view, shattered or were they awakened? But at any rate, you need what they know to go to the facility in Bucharest and they're going to be the only ones who understand the uh, the four-dimensional quantum code that then allows you to, uh, you know, recover the lost nukes, for example. And so you need them along. You need them to uh, keep their stuff together, but you can't then, you know, just put them away somewhere. You need them with you, and you are not, uh, as far as you know, trying to solve their problem. You're trying to use them to solve your problem, and then... As you go further and further along, the doubt begins to arise as, you know, oh, the fourth dimensional quantum language, is this a demon? Is this an alien portal? And so that it's only, uh, but nonetheless, there's, uh, once it gets going, that you may have to, you know, the, the uh, objective perceiving characters may be the ones who have to go and bust the other characters out because they know something about them. Uh, that they can interpret the language or whatever. And that gives you a, a reason to keep them around and a thing that you're worried about, because, of course, you're not worried about demons or aliens, at least not at first, because you don't believe they exist. Yeah, you need um, you need some outside enforcement of the general player character code of it's us against the world and we don't want to trust uh, our friends in the hands of the authorities by and large. And it can be a, a, pragmat, a pragmatic thing. It can even be a, an internal thing. In, in, the, in the movie, the one character doesn't want to commit the other character because he values their friendship more than he values the guy's possible um, uh, collapse, which is a weird way to look at it. But yeah. we've all been in friendships like <laughs> which, that. Which is what allows the, the uh, third act to occur, yes. such as it is. Now, now. And, and, and so you, you, you ideally want to reinforce that with, with story elements. And if it never comes up, great. Um, and, but the other thing that you want to provide is for the other characters to face a sense, the objective world char characters to face a sense of something else dangerous that is happening in the world that maybe could be explained by the subject of reality characters being not right, but you know, accidentally right, or, you know, even in their madness, they see a kind of truth type thing. So maybe there is a thing that happens when you're near the, the frozen section in the grocery store and you think, well, that guy had his arm in reaching for the milk for a long time. And then I think he was following me afterward. Maybe he is, well, maybe he's not a demon, but maybe my crazy friend noticed something about that guy because he has this weird um, uh, alertness. And you, you have to sort of play with that question, even the subject of reality characters should be convinced that they're right, but maybe want to be uh, pretending like they don't so that they will not get sent to the insane asylum. And the object of reality characters are thinking maybe the subject of reality characters, while not right, are onto something. And we need all of these perspectives to solve the mystery of the of the scenario or the mystery of the campaign. So if you can build a little bit of desire for normalcy into the into the uh, mad characters and a little bit of desire for madness into the normal characters i think you can allow these stories to organically move forward based on what the player characters want and what they might believe at any given time and even if when you stand back at it you look and you say well a, a simple person who's not under any stress would have done this it's like well that doesn't describe anyone in this game so thanks for nothing you know right. the big guy. challenge is going to be maintaining suspense when 
players A expect you to go in the direction they will enjoy most, and 97% of player groups will prefer the nerd tropier explanation of the ultimately of the demons or the aliens being real. And so that's a big sort of conundrum to uh, deal with. And I think the solution to that is just to keep your options open, open, open as far as you possibly can uh, and deliver uh, a satisfying ending, which then allows a, a note of ambiguity afterwards. But uh, that's, uh, that's, that's the tough thing to do because, uh, you know, in general, people who play horror games want uh, to be fighting imaginary monsters more than they want to be, uh, you know, just dealing with a, a brainwashing experiment gone awry. And I guess uh, uh, once we're talking about the ending of the scenario, we're also ending this segment. And uh, I think we can all objectively agree that a commercial and then another segment are both coming up next. And we're sent by demons. <laughs> Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. The film spools through the projector as a billowing, silvery, alluring cloud of cigarette smoke in beautiful luminous black and white puffs up on our screen. There's uh, now light shining through a set of Venetian blinds. It's a charoscuro light, it's expressionist light, and indeed we are now sitting in our office, we're putting our feet up on the desk as we wait for a femme fatale to come through the door and tempt us with an offer, and that offer is to supply you, the listener, with our Film Noir 101. Ken, I suspect that our list of titles for a Film Noir 101 is going to be even more similar than our already very similar list of classic westerns, so why don't we start by defining the indefinable, because the thing about film noir is it is chum in the waters for people who like to argue definitions. Exactly. Uh, unlike the musical or the boxing melodrama or the women's picture, people who were making these movies at the time didn't say, hey, let's make a film noir. Uh, they were saying, let's make a crime movie or a gangster movie or, you know, this weird uh, domestic freakout. And that's probably not a term they used either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what they weren't saying was film noir. They may have even saying hard-boiled. But later uh, critics, after the period in which most of these films were originally made, 
retrospectively assigned the genre film noir to them. Uh, and in fact, this uh, because they were largely French critics, they borrowed the title from Serre Noirs, the Black Books, which was a set of a series of French translations of American crime novels. And so this certainly evoked the, the whole detective world. So they called it film noir. And film noir is less a tight, defined genre rather than sort of more of a point system, whereas if a film has enough of these different elements in it, we will more or less call them a film noir. And we may, even one of us may come up with a film noir that the other considers something else. So Ken, what are the key elements that lead people to identify a film as a film noir? Yeah, like you say, it is not the sort of thing where there is a single definition. Is there a uh, scientific speculation presented as, as actuality? It's science fiction. Does it take place in the Old West? It is a Western. Does, you know, things that where you can basically establish a degree of, of, of boundaries and people are right now writing in with science fiction movies that have no scientific speculation and Westerns that take place in Australia. And yes, I knew about them. Shut up. (laughs) I'm making a point about looseness of definition. Think about it. Anyhow, um, noir combines both a sensibility and, and which can extend in, I believe its deepest and best cases into a, uh, a view of the universe, a philosophy with a lot of other characteristics that you can build films out of without ever touching on even the sensibility, much less the philosophical view of the universe. And so where I can make an argument one way or the other, that a Western is not a, a proper Western. If it does not contain the Western agon, I don't believe that I can make the argument that a film is not noir if it doesn't contain the core of noir philosophy, because it might indeed be uh, shot with angled perspectives in a mostly dark and shadowy set and be based on an American crime novel and ideally by a European emigre director and have snappy dialogue and a couple of gunshots that will make it noir as much as anything else is noir. Even if I say it is not as deep or um, uh, philosophically uh, valuable a noir as um, something like any of the movies that are, we're going to get to. But um, the core element of noir that I think is is the deepest and bestest noir, if not the truest noir, is, although I also think it's the truest noir, is the revelation by a character who commits a sin or crime that the universe is implacable and will destroy you. And the discovery of the truth does not make anyone's life better. And those sort of elements that the world is is corrupt and implacable and dangerous and sinful, and that by sinning even just a little bit, you have doomed yourself, are the fundamental elements, I feel, of the of the proper noir. And one of those is driven by the Hayes Code, which said, no criminal can ever prosper from committing a crime. End of story. You can't make a movie if, if they do. So if you're going to make crime movies, guess what? They all have to end with the criminal getting their comeuppance. And once that is an external factor on how you make movies, then you're going to wind up making a bunch of movies that try to respond to that constraint in really creative, weird, interesting, disturbing, philosophically unsettling ways. Uh, where the Hayes Code wanted it to be, there are good people and bad people. Noir's answer is, well, if all bad people get their comeuppance, perhaps everyone is bad people and we all get our comeuppance. How do you like them apples, Mr. Hayes? And that is the interesting conversation that I think drove a lot of these directors who are, as as you say, not saying, ah, perhaps today I will make a film noir. They're saying, perhaps this week I can get this shot so that RKO will give me my tiny miserable check and I can go drink it away. But 
that worldview is then infusing all of the other things that they're doing. And again, because the budgets of these movies are generally low, although there are A-list noir movies, um, no one at the studio cares that they're shot in wonky European fashion or that they have um, uh, weird elliptical dialogue and plots that you can't follow. It's like, did you finish it? Is Ava Gardner in it? All right, release it. We're done. And that sort of combination of sort of that Marxist notion of the means of production informing it and the Hayes Code enforcing story limits creates sort of um, uh, an alchemical fusion of something that is harder to do now because we don't have a Hayes Code and because even a cheap movie can look pretty good if you're at all good at what you do the way that the European guys were when they were shooting for RK or the other mediocre uh, film companies. Right. There's also a, a usually a tension between that uh, idea of being led ineluctably to doom and the commercial necessity of having a happy ending. So a lot of noirs that uh, we don't probably won't rank in this one, but once we get to 201 have uh, tacked on happy endings that kind of ruin everything. <laughs> there are uh, voiceover narrative is a huge factor in this. They, these films are uh, very often subjective. They're very often uh, told retrospectively the character describing the process by which they are doomed. Uh, in at least the case of uh, one of the films we're going to get to, uh, literally is already doomed by the time the uh, narration <laughs> starts. And uh, as you mentioned, it's uh, often they're in uh, this extreme expressionist style, uh, black and white, inspired by uh, German silent uh, filmmakers. And many of whom were the noir directors because they'd been driven out of Germany by Hitler. Indeed, yes. Uh, and so this was the uh, uh, milieu in which they could. Uh, uh, recast their style for uh, American audiences. Uh, there are critics who argue that no film noir can possibly exist after 1955 or so, that the, a film noir is only from its original period, unless you somehow sometimes hear people say the term neo-noir. I think that's ridiculously limiting since it just says, well, this genre stopped and all the other <laughs> films that people are making in that genre aren't that genre somehow, but it's like, Oh, you know, are musicals now neo-musicals? Are, are boxing pictures no longer possible? That seems like a ridiculous restriction. Um, some people argue that it must be in black and white. And I, I would argue that uh, later films uh, can be perfectly noirish and dark and, and disturbing in their visual style without literally being in black and white. So let's um, start listing off titles. I think there's two main streams of noir. There's the uh, detective noir, the hard-boiled noir. Uh, and that, uh, as you can guess from the, the description, deals with characters who are investigating mysteries, and that enables a level of uh, sanity and disorder because they may be led close to destruction, but they can bring order back into the world. Uh, and then we'll get to later the, the domestic noir, the noir of personal destruction. But probably the one that kicked it all off is uh, 1941's The Maltese Falcon by John Huston. I assume this is also on your list. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, As you say, I suspect our lists are going to overlap pretty much entirely. And even if we wouldn't say that's the first one we would point to, it, it's going to be in the first, you know, certainly would be in the first 10 we'd point to and probably in the first five. Right. Yeah. But the Maltese Falcon definitely establishes that universe while also being a, well, relatively conventional detective story uh, in that Sam Spade has, uh, you know, is, um, uh, is walking the mean streets, but he's almost a, a Raymond Chandler character in a Dashiell Hammett novel. Um, he is touched by, by the, by the circumstances. And, and if you just look at the story, 
you'd say, yes, Sam Spade has, has been, you know, become a broken man at the end of this. But because it's Humphrey Bogart, you're like, ah, he'll shake it off. He'll meet someone just as good and get a partner three times as good at the end of it. But yes, uh, the Maltese Falcon, certainly visually and in a lot of other ways, is the beginning of noir. And it's a great freaking movie and endlessly quotable. It is the Ghostbusters of 1941, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, and it speaks to the literary antecedents of the genre, as we alluded to earlier. Uh, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler are the two big names in uh, the hard-boiled fiction game, and we'll also uh, there are also noir writers like David Goodis or Cornell Woolrick. Uh, David Goodis is still also quite readable. I think Cornell Woolrick, you're probably better off. I'm a huge, I'm a huge Woolrick fan. I think that you should go ahead and read Cornell Woolrick. Uh, if, if you can handle hard-boiled crime novels at all, Woolrick's, uh, story construction is so much better. I, I, he's as good as Hammett, as far as I'm concerned, at story construction. And, uh, speaking of Bogey, uh, and Chandler, I would also name, uh, The Big Sleep from 1946, directed by Howard Hawks. We're talking about snappy dialogue. Uh, there's no dialogue snappier. There's more, no more of a sense of uh, Los Angeles as a mysterious labyrinthine noir world of almost sort of uh, mythological exen- existential mystery. Uh, and that has uh, Lauren Bacall in it well. And it has uh, sort of one of the great romances in noir that is not destructive because the, uh, <laughs> the, the female character who represents destruction is uh, not the uh, female lead in this in this instance and is uh, in a way is also I think uh, the antecedent for a lot of what eventually winds up in James Bond so uh, while we are doing the absolute unmissables I will be the one who says Double Indemnity directed by the great Billy Wilder in 1944 starring Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck and Barbara Stanwyck has never looked better, and very few human beings have ever looked better than Barbara Stanwyck. Ankle bracelets movie. have never looked better. Right. No, the whole thing is great, and it is. Um, uh, it was an A movie at the time that it was made. It was filmed based on a James M. Kane novel. But it's from Paramount, a real studio. A-list director, uh, Raymond Chandler, and uh, co-wrote the screenplay. So no stops were uh, were left un pulled or however it is they pulled out all the stops my, my larger point and uh it was nominated for a bunch of academy awards it didn't win any because the oscars then as now were a joke uh, but the um uh but it is a absolute path-breaking film in a lot of ways and it became uh, such a huge success that a lot of other movies that were maybe we're not going to be noir we're told make me a double indemnity on our archaeo budget and they went out and they made a bunch of great noirs because they were living in that space occupied jointly by double indemnity and uh, the maltese falcon right and it's the story of an insurance salesman who is uh, lured into a uh, plot to uh, kill a beautiful woman's husband and uh, get away with it and get away with the money and it also has uh, edward g robinson as the a uh, dogged insurance investigator who... Yes, uh, the guy who's going to bring handsome, beautiful Fred McMurray down. Right, who uh, who esteems him greatly, and uh, and that's part of the, the joy, is that they're, they're friends already. Um, well, that was the number three on my list, and so uh, I'll accept your uh, Billy Wilder and raise you a Billy Wilder and move over oh, to oh. the previously or uh, foreshadowed Sunset Boulevard from 1950. Yes. Um this is an example of the domestic noir. There are, uh, there's certainly a crime that occurs uh, in it, but it is not primarily a crime film. It's about a screenwriter who, uh, played by William Holden, who is drawn into the uh, spiritual darkness through his relationship with Norma Desmond, 
who is played by a uh, silent actress, uh, Gloria Swanson. And he, uh, he gets uh, sucked into the uh, vortex of her uh, uh, delusion in this uh, mansion that she lives in with her uh, butler slash possibly former director slash possibly former lover, uh, played by Eric von Stroheim. Uh, and, uh, and, and to show you how uh, culture has changed since then in our, our sense, the uh, Norma Desmond is depicted as a sort of crazy old uh, has-been, but she's uh, listed as being 50 years old <laughs> in that <laughs> film. And uh, those of us who are now on the other side of 50 uh, don't think of that as, uh, as quite so ancient as, uh, as might have been the case in 1950. But there, that's an example of a story that is about personal destruction and is told with the uh, usual brilliant Billy Wilder wit and cynicism. <laughs> um, I am now going to go with an A-list director, but the movie is, I think, the first genuine B-movie on our list. Um, it was independently produced. I think it was distributed by Universal, but it was independently produced by the actors, which is always a good sign, and by the director. This is the Fritz Lang movie Scarlet Street, 1945. Next on my list. Yes, we are as one, Robin. Yeah. This is why we have a podcast and other dyads do not. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, Take that, other dyads. This is the movie that, for me, is... That what I talked about, the philosophy of noir, this marinates it in the philosophy of oh, noir. This so is the, bleak, so the, bleak. The, the most, the, you, you could squeeze this movie and other noirs would come raining <laughs> out of it. That is how noir it is. You cannot not watch this movie and just have it get inside you. It's Edward G. Robinson plays a, uh, a, a guy who is in love with um, uh, Joan Bennett. Um, and that is a mistake in all of these movies. But if you've seen Joan Bennett, you're like, well, I, I, I totally believe why you would do that. But he's married to someone other than Joan Bennett. He's married to someone other than Joan Bennett, a nice lady. But, um, oh, she's actually not she's so not nice. a nice lady because it's a noir. Yeah. Um, he is an amateur hobbyist painter. Uh, Joan Bennett's boyfriend, Dan Durier, the greatest creep in all noir, hooks up a deal where he will steal money from his job to keep Joan Bennett. And Dan Duryea will convince him he's a great painter so that he can devote all of his life to painting and they won't, and he won't mind that he's, uh, destroyed his career. And at that point, you're thinking, now we're done with this movie. No, it gets more criminal and more horrible and more bleak and more awful. And it was actually, I think, uh, this is one of the ones where the Hayes said, well, we said come to a bad end. We didn't mean that bad an end. Back it up. And they were, and they said, well, show us on the form where it's not in compliance with the code and they couldn't do it. But, uh, it did not do very well at the box office. Um, and it certainly did not make Dan Duryea a global star as it, as it should have. Um, compared to this guy, you know, if your choice is Dan Duryea or Steve Buscemi, give Steve Buscemi your wallet. That's my advice here. Uh, and of course, Joan Bennett is, is amazing, um, uh, in it. And Edward G. Robinson as a sap instead of a tough guy is another great turn. It's just a magnificent movie. The plot is just, it, it, it literally, it's like the book of Job, the way that, you know, the plot literally tries to destroy Edward G. Robinson at every turn. And it's so implacable and so beautiful and you can't not love it. Yes. It, uh, we needed a film by Fritz Lang on the list because it's his visual style that he established in, uh, 30s movies in Germany that, along with some other uh, directors that uh, came into noir. So I'm glad we got a Fritz Lang movie in there. Uh, sticking with domestic noir, uh, In a Lonely Place, 1950 yes. film by Nicholas Ray. Uh, once again, Humphrey Bogart. Uh, in this case, he is an embittered screenwriter with a mean streak, and he uh, uh, falls for a, a, a 
wounded uh, lady played by uh, Gloria Graham. And uh, it is all about the darkness inside of one rising up. And can you uh, really uh, overcome who you are inside or are you doomed? And more importantly, is all love between men and women doomed? Again, uh, (laughs) this is as bleak as Scarlet Street in some way, but also I think sort of um, more sophisticated and has more of a sense of melancholy that you... Yeah, the, there's. I think there's more beauty in its world than there is in Scarlet Street's world. Because yeah. Scarlet Street also goes out of its way to say, oh, by the way, beauty also doesn't exist. Yeah, so for Chris <laughs> Lang's perspective is these characters are insects, but <laughs> yeah. Nicholas Ray's uh, point of view, uh, and he was a fascinating director who had a notoriously stormy life, uh, he clearly identifies very much with the bogey character, and so it is uh, you're much more inside uh, feeling for these characters in a, in a lonely place. And, and it is a, a, another a gorgeous piece of uh, 1950s, uh, beautiful, aching uh, drama. What's up next? What's up next? Um, we continue our Dan Duryea mini festival with Criss Cross, directed by Robert Sodmack, who is the brother, I think, of the guy that wrote The Wolfman, in case you care. Um, uh, and he directed it in 1949. It, again, I don't think was a, it was like a Universal B imprint, Universal International. So Universal distributed it, but they didn't put a lot of money into it. So it's a, it's a relatively cheap film and it contains what I personally consider one of the great reasons to watch noir and maybe one of the qualities that noir should have fascinating urban shooting locations because so much of it is shot in the Bunker Hill section of Los Angeles, which at that time was just sort of falling down Victorians and cheap and terrible. It was uh, racially integrated, so the neighborhood was being allowed to go to hell by the government, the city government, but it also meant you could shoot there basically for free and no one would uh, push you around. So lots of film companies, if they couldn't afford a real location, would go down to Bunker Hill and shoot their noir there. And so if you've seen the Bunker Hill uh, once you see any at any time, you'll always want to see it in every other noir movie. This is one of the great urban location films, and it has Burt Lancaster, and um, uh, it has Yvonne DiCarlo as his ex-wife, and Dan Duryea as the guy who his ex-wife marries because it's noir. And so, in order to get back at Dan Dundee or at um, uh, Dan Duryea rather, uh, Burt Lancaster comes up with a daylight armored car robbery as a scam, and they both have to pull it off, though. And guess what? There is a crisscross, hence the title of the movie. So it is a crime film, uh, and a, a little bit of a heist film, and an urban location film, and a domestic noir, and it's uh, by the very underrated, I think, Robert Sodmack, and is just crazily good, because we're still in the crazily good section of our discussion. And um, people, I, I think they sort of expect Burt Lancaster to do more Burt Lancaster-y things in it, but this is relatively early in his career, where he's just happy to be a leading man, and so... Um, it's not going to feel like another Burt Lancaster movie. So if you go into it and you're, and you're rubbing your hands together, Bogart is always Bogart, but, um, uh, Burt Lancaster, like a lot of other leading men played sort of in two, uh, stages, the, the sort of, um, uh, the, the guy who could be flawed in a noir movie. And then he would have to be the, the, the big time Hollywood guy. Uh, in his later career, but this is early Burt and it's really good. Uh, we're running long already, but I want to get a few more in. So let's go to Gun Crazy from 1950 by Joseph H. Lewis. This is a, uh, outlaw couple on the run movie. It was, it's one of those, uh, B movies that just, uh, went out there and sank without a trace at the time and has been, uh, elevated to the pinnacle by, 
reviewers and has this great uh, long uh, shot that occurs all within a car. It's one of the early sort of uh, first takes in uh, in film noir. And so uh, check out Gun Crazy. Ken, what's next? Straight up crime movie again by John Huston, 1950, The Asphalt Jungle. Uh, it's a straight up heist movie. They're going to do a jewel robbery. It's, you know, it's um, uh, sort of. I think it's pre-Rafifi, in fact, isn't it? But it's it's Sterling yeah, Hayden and um, uh, James Whitmore and Sam Jaffe and a bunch of other people that no one really cares about. Marilyn Monroe, I think it's either her first part or her second part, but she's in a tiny little minor role and she's barely even Marilyn Monroe. But it's just a great every because you don't know who any of these people are. They just disappear into the roles and it's really good. It's the American Rafifi, um, uh, John Houston, 1950 Asphalt Jungle, uh, 1958 Orson Welles, Touch of Evil. I've forgotten ah. this one until I've mentioned tracking shots. It's famous <laughs> for the uh, opening credit tracking shot uh, starring your favorite Mexican detective, Charlton Heston, uh, Janet Lee, and Wells himself in a uh, classic role as a corrupt uh, uh, sheriff. Uh, you've got Marlena Dietrich in there as the uh, sad-eyed uh, uh, woman who really understands uh, what's going on, and uh, uh, Dennis Weaver in a little cameo role as a Popeye psychopath. Uh, and a great score by Henry Mancini. We do love Popeye psychopaths. I would say up there, maybe not quite on the uh, on, on the tippity top top top, but I would say way up at the top uh, for noir is uh, the film Nightmare Alley, which I actually saw again at the at the fest. Did I see it at the fest? Maybe I didn't see it at the fest. Maybe I saw it at the fest earlier. Maybe it just um, it, uh, reappeared in your brain one night because it is so shockingly uh, dark, even for noirs of the period. Even for noir. It's uh, Tyrone Power as... Oh, I know what it is. I was looking at books that had the tarot as a structure. The novel that it's based on has the tarot as a structure. I saw the movie at a fest at the fest long ago is what happened. That's why it's in my head. It's Tyrone Power as a carnival barker. And he, at the beginning of the movie, uh, Tyrone Power looks at the, the, the geek, the horrible, twisted, <laughs> uh, disgusting person whose job is to bite the heads off chickens and says, gosh, I wonder how someone becomes a circus geek. What would drive you to do that for your life? And guess what's going to happen in this movie? Yeah, it's a yes, film Tyrone about a man Power. who starts as a carnival barker and things then go bad for him. Things get worse. Um, uh, but it's uh, Tyrone Power. It really carries the thing he was trying to break his swashbuckler um, uh, uh, casting and boy, did he. <laughs> so if you think of this as, this is like the Charlize Theron going ugly for monster of 1947. Um, and it's uh, directed by a guy who I don't think I know he did anything else or care. Edmund Golding. Do you know any other Edmund Golding films? Uh, the, the name does not ring in my cinematic head. No. So Joan Blondell is, I guess the, one of the lead, uh, women, uh, the other one, I guess is Colleen Gray. But anyway, the, uh, the, the, it's the story of the destruction of Tyrone Barker for being, um, curious about life and, uh, boy, and also for being a con artist in fairness, but it's a, it's a great movie and it's just unsettling and weird. And it sort of is one of your little doorways into the sort of noir as stories of subcultures other than crime, because there's a lot of not just uh, repressed or actual homoerotic content in noir films, but there's other sorts of weird subcultures like uh, wrestling or, or, or taxi drivers or, or uh, other sorts of worlds that the sort of um, uh, 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 man in the gray flannel suit who is going to see the movies or the housewife who's going to go see the movies doesn't know and only wants to be titillated by. And Noir's job is to de dive deep into that uh, mysterious world and show you that, yep, it's horrible. Uh, coming to the uh, the end of the Noir cycle, the, the film that starts to uh, literally explode the Noir 
the apocalyptic film noir Kiss Me Deadly from 1955, directed by Robert Aldrich. He takes a Mike Hammer novel, of all things, and uh, explodes it, basically. Yes, and, uh, yes. The uh, trope of the glowing suitcase that you may know from Pulp Fiction comes from uh, Kiss Me Deadly, and this is the detective uh, movie now suffused with uh, a sense of uh, not just personal doom, but existential doom. And uh, to think that a Mike Hammer novel would support that uh, that degree of of weight is uh, is quite something. And it's, a real and it's where the trope of the glowing briefcase comes from. Yeah. If you were if you were wondering, and I'm going to finish it out. Then uh, you have exploded the genre with Mike Hammer, and I will uh, give you the top of the neo noir iceberg. The most recent, the best, most recent. Uh, noir, the best noir in color, The Last Seduction, starring the immortal Linda Fiorentino and directed by John Dahl. It also stars Peter Berg before he became a director and producer and Bill Pullman in a classic skeezy role that it's great to see Bill Pullman in. And it, this is a femme fatale. Linda Fiorentino is the only person in history that I would send up against Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity and cross my fingers and, and see how that works out. But it's really, really good. It's a super great script. It's perfectly structured in a way that noirs were not always, but it has that same feeling of being sort of in a little carnival maze somehow. And uh, Linda Fiorentino deserved the Oscar for it because it was shown on HBO. The Academy ruled she was ineligible, uh, but it, it's just outstanding. It's it's worthy of comparison with all other great noirs. Don't uh, neglect it merely because it was made in 1994 and has Bill Pullman in it. And I'll jump back two decades and uh, go with the conventional choice for uh, the noir revival, the neo-noir, and that is uh, Roman Polanski's Chinatown yeah. uh, starring Jack Nicholson with uh, Robert Towns' uh, nearly perfect screenplay. Yes, it is a, it's a magnificent movie. Chinatown is actually, yes, better than Last Seduction. Fine, whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, and just as a classical narrative being recapitulated in the early 70s, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how the uh, new wave directors of the American 70s recapitulated the classic uh, studio films of the uh, 40s and 50s, and I think there's probably no... A better example of something hitting those heights than another. So uh, I'm going to leave off my other uh, neo-noir uh, for uh, Noir 201, and uh, we can now pronounce ourselves uh, somehow safe from the bleakness and disaster of the universe uh, as long as we quickly run through this escape tunnel into our next segment. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and game 
consumer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Our show walks alone through podcasting's mean streets, thanks to patrons exactly like... Volpine. Brian Malcolm. Padraig Griffin. And Adam Gruckjohn. The smell of grilling meat, the sound of uh, voices demanding more and more for less and less, the chump, chump, chump of a knife chopping something, possibly daikon radish, tells us we've entered an exciting, possibly street food-inflected segment of the Food Hut. And here in the Food Hut, Robin, uh, you have either gone down to... um. Uh, whatever Toronto's Little Saigon is, or you've read a book, but you have come back demanding to talk about Bon Mi. And certainly when I first discovered the existence of Bon Mi, I wanted to uh, tell the world. So what have we got about Bon Mi and where did you stumble well, on I, it? I, I have not recently discovered Bon Mi, of course, because I of live in, in Toronto, the uh, uh, locus for all, uh, all foodstuffs. Uh, but I thought it would be a great Ken and Robin food to talk about because it is so uh, bound up in history. Um, and, and delicious. And, and delicious, of course, yes. yes. If it, if it was a, an, a mediocre food that had great <laughs> historical significance, it would be in the history hut, but it yes. is in the delicious confines of the food hut. And uh, Vietnamese-speaking listeners, uh, be prepared. It is now your language that is going on the chopping block yes. of Ken and Robin's You have a chance to get mad at us, as do these, as opposed to these Scandinavian, Slavic, and um, uh, Near Eastern language speakers. Yes. So... Uh, if you go to Vietnam and just ask for banh mi, that just means bun. That has been shortened to sell it to Westerners. Uh, but the full term is banh mi viet nguoi. And uh, this is uh, for our listeners who have not experienced a banh mi. First of all, go have a banh mi. Yeah. Oh, for goodness it's, sake, yes. Uh, amazingly cheap at the, the local uh, paragon of classic banh mi. They're two fifty dollars each. Uh, and... Uh, you can get them in uh, regular and spicy, uh, and the spicy here in Toronto is uh, spicy by Ontario standards, not spicy, not spicy. by Vietnam <laughs> standards. Um, but anyway, this is basically this is a cultural diffusion sandwich, uh, and it's gone through a whole bunch of different layers of history and cultural diffusion, and they begin. Uh, in 1887 with the French occupation of Indochina. What do people need to know about that, Ken? Uh, before we get to the French, in <laughs> as the Indochinese are saying, could you put that off for just a second? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think um, we we have not yet actually said what is on a banh mi, have we? Just the standard what's Go on ahead. a banh mi? Describe the banh what's mi. Standard, what's standard on a banh mi, and like everything else, it can change and, and mess around, but it has your your wonderful uh, Vietnamese uh, baguette bread the the bread it has usually a meat often a pork or pork belly sometimes uh chicken but it's it's, it's whatever the, the the cold cut happens to be uh, uh sometimes ham. grilled uh often ham um it can be sausage it can be pate and then there is pickled carrot and pickled uh radish and cucumber and sometimes other vegetables and often jalapenos or another kind of relatively mild pepper 
uh, than mayonnaise as the condiment. So that's your basic banh mi. Right. It's the crunchy, delicious baguette, delicious, flavorful meat, um, cool, soothing vegetables, and mayo, and a right. little pepper. And I would say pate and cold cuts. Right, yes. You could. You can absolutely have a, a mixed meats banh mi. I don't want to say you can't. So anyway, um, that's what you're, that's what you're getting when you order your, your amazingly cheap, totally delicious bun me. Right. So how did a bun, uh, become one of the, uh, uh, signature foods of a rice culture? Well, it starts in 1887, Ken, with the French, French occupation, occupation of Indochina. Of China. All right. The French, um, uh, as is their wont, uh, globally saw the British doing something, said, we can do it just as good. But the British, of course, as their wont had taken all the good parts. So the French, uh, realizing that the British have India and who they'd pushed the French out of and had, uh, with Hong Kong and the other treaty ports had their, uh, hooks deep into China said, we'll take the one in the middle, Indochina. And they settled there. And by, by settled, I mean, came in with gunboats and shot everyone until they were the ones in charge of collecting the taxes and attempted to wring every last uh, franc out of the, uh, Indochinese economy. And it was just straight up. Invade and conquer. There's no, you know, justification for it. It, it, it. Similarly to the British conquering India, they they were the strongest guy on the block with a gun. It's just that the British had been in the block for a hundred years before they said, "Oh, screw it, let's just conquer this place." And the French were uh, Johnny Catchup uh, to the English and just sailed in and took over Indochina. Right. So, and, and you think in the kitchen that this would? Oh, well, this probably is why the baguette is an important ingredient of a uh, Vietnamese food, but. Not so fast, because in this period, uh, the French had a theory that bread and meat made Westerners strong, and rice and fish made Easterners weak. And, of course, they wanted to uh, continue that as uh, imperialist uh, occupiers. And so uh, ordinary Vietnamese people did not get their hands on uh, baguettes at the time, also because they were extremely expensive. Wheat doesn't grow in Vietnam. And so uh, the flour had to be imported, and they were a luxury good until the next big global upheaval in uh, beginning of World War One. The uh, Germans and the French, of course, uh, went to war, and the uh, French, before leaving and going back home to fight uh, World War One, took over the German-held food stores in Vietnam and then just let all of their uh, stores go and become available to people for cheap. So there was a big drop in the price of European imported food. And that's when people started getting a hold of uh, flour and making uh, the baguettes that they had seen the French eating. Uh, and uh, that's also when, uh, when those ingredients became affordable. Maggie sauce, which is another key ingredient of the banh mi, which is an MSG sauce from Switzerland, also caught on in Vietnam. And so all of the ingredients then came into play. Uh, but at that point, it was not mayo, but butter that was an essential ingredient of the, of the banh mi. And Ken, what do you think caused the, uh, the switchover? What big politi- geopolitical event changed butter into mayo on the banh mi? Well, if you're going from butter to eggs, it means that um, uh, all of your cows or access to cows have gone away, which implies that we're having another war and the next war is due in, oh, look at that, 1940 and the Vichy French being Vichy French on the other side of the world also roll over for the Axis and the Japanese come in and occupy Indochina and they want all of that high quality uh, cow protein for the army. And so guess what's left over? Crummy eggs for the locals. And that's what you make mayonnaise out of. Yes. And, and I guess the Japanese love of mayo is a different segment. I don't know if this is 
the Japanese already love mayo at this point, but if they do, that might also explain why mayo uh, is uh, butter is associated with a hated French. Uh, this is an odd uh, situation where the you know the incoming Japanese occupiers were not initially despised as much as the as the French were. And <laughs> well, so, you know, the, the Nazis were not initially despised in the Ukraine as much as Stalin was. Exactly. And then the Nazis said, oh, you haven't been reading up on Nazis, have you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have, you we're also terrible despise. at things in addition to being terrible. And uh, all through this period, Hanoi is ground zero for the uh, sandwich that will become the banh mi we know. But guess what? There's another geopolitical upheaval in 1954. Ken, what happens then? What happens then? The uh, line between the north and the south becomes official on the UN maps. It had previously, uh, the argument had been Vietnam would be unified under free elections. And when uh, the United States realized that there was not a non-trivial chance that Ho Chi Minh might win a free election, they said, well, how about if half of, you know, of Vietnam is under Ho and the other half is under our guy? And so uh, a lot of refugees... Uh, were encouraged by the North because they were um, uh, subversives and encouraged by the South because they needed voters who were going to vote for a military strongman uh, to flood from Hanoi to Saigon. And amongst them are the kinds of dodgy Western imperialist lovers who make sandwiches out of bread and mayonnaise instead of decent rice and nothing, which is what uh, the North Vietnamese cuisine became for the next 40 years. And and people who still want to run their own businesses. So exactly. The, also, it's very hard to have a communist sandwich cart, uh, regardless of what you might uh, think about uh, at a Bernie Sanders rally. So among the people who leave Hanoi are the uh, Lei family, who then arrive in Saigon, and they set up the Wa Ma uh, restaurant, which still exists today. And uh, the woman in that couple, uh, Mrs. Uh, Lei Fi Han is still, as far as we know, in 2016, purveying delicious banh mi. Uh, ban mi. And what they do to uh, reconfigure the baseline of what a banh mi is, is they make it more affordable by making the baguette smaller. And uh, they add more veg and take out a little bit of meat. And then suddenly, it's not just a super delicious sandwich, but a super affordable sandwich. And another thing that happens uh, at their restaurant is that the assortment of pickles that used to go on the table or not on the table on the plate around the uh, sandwich go they jump on into the sandwich and so that is what leads to the uh banh mi as we know it and uh if only there was another big geopolitical change that would change once again the destiny of the banh mi sending it fleeing into the west ken what happened in 1975 well, 1975, remember the communists? They're back! You loved them in 1954. They're even communister, although not so communist as to destroy every sandwich shop, because there's a lot of sandwich shops in, in Saigon, and eventually people do need to eat. Uh, but uh, another uh, 800,000, give or take, Vietnamese flee communist Vietnam uh, for the United States, and they bring with them... A delicious sandwich, because as every other immigrant group in the United States could have told them, bring your delicious sandwich. It will make things a lot better. Right. And they also flee to Toronto, and they and the banh mi takes root here as well. So what happens is, uh, in, at least in Oklahoma City, uh, the Vietnamese uh, refugees open terrible Chinese places until Ken Height leaves, and then they... <laughs> 
turn them into great <laughs> Vietnamese stores and banh mi blow up in the late 80s about, which is about as long as it takes uh, penniless refugees to get to decide their own menu in America. And, um, and so if you're, if you're wondering, you know, count down, the really good Syrian food will be showing up in about eight years from now. So, so the Vietnamese sandwich becomes a big deal beginning in urban areas where the Vietnamese settled, such as Oklahoma City and, uh, Minneapolis, but then eventually spreading all over the country. It, it, uh, hit New York, I think at some point in the nineties. And once, of course, it hits New York, the New York Times notices it, uh, two years later, and then it uh, becomes, a national food trend as it is today. Right. Uh, and uh, another element of the story is the fluffiness mystery. Uh, why is the classic banh mi bun so fluffy? And one uh, theory has always held that there is rice flour in it. But uh, anyone who's reported back after trying to use rice flour reports that no, instead it, it conveys the opposite of fluffiness. And uh, it is rumored that a duck egg is uh, the secret fluffiness. But that is... Um, any place that makes their own buns uh, has their own secret family recipe. So you can never quite, uh, if there's a, a bun that's super fluffy, uh, you're not quite sure why that is. Um, so before we start to close out and move to the modern day, uh, I should credit uh, much of this information is from Simon Stanley, who's the uh, historian of the banh mi and a uh, still a resident of uh, Vietnam. And, uh, Ken, are there any, anything else you want to add about the, uh, is there a favorite banh mi place in Chicago that you seek out? Um, the, the thing about Chicago, there's, um, an area of Chicago on Ar Argyle Street that is the Vietnamese district there. Uh, it's called, uh, Little Chinatown or, uh, North Chinatown or Little Saigon, depending on exactly how sensitive you want to be. And, um, there, all of the banh mi's there are great. There was a banh mi place that was right across from the music box, which is the theater where I see all the film noirs. And it actually served the first mediocre banh mi I have ever eaten. And it is out of business and justifiably so. But, um, uh, and it was too expensive also. It was wrong on all levels for a banh mi. And so the, uh, the thing to do is go to Argyle Street, get off the red line and walk in any direction when you're hungry. There will be a great banh mi right there. I do want to say, uh, if you remember good old Uncle Ho, uh, Ho Chi Minh, um, he spent the time in France when he was in France studying um, and trying to get recognized as the representative of Indochina at the Peace of Versailles cooking in French restaurants. So like the 100,000 other Vietnamese who were drafted into the French army and served in Europe, he probably brought with him back and with his entourage and with other people some degree of uh, a taste for French bread that uh, the, uh, him and those other hundred thousand guys maybe provide that core audience that a banh mi place would have needed to get started up in uh, interwar Hanoi. Right. Well, maybe that's why they uh, let the banh mi places come back uh, relatively quickly after they take Saigon. Yes. His Uncle Ho is like, I'm going to die, but I'm not going to die without banh mi. Yes. Uh, in Toronto, the... Uh original diffusion point of the banh mi and it's still my uh, favorite is uh the nguyen hong uh that's the aforementioned place where you go in and get your two dollar fifty banh mi and just in the past couple of years the next generation of that family uh have started a hipster fusion banh mi a place called banh mi boys they've now expanded to three locations and uh they are uh it's evolving yet again uh, in a fusiony direction so they have uh like a duck confit uh, banh mi, which, of course, is a callback to the French influence right. on the banh mi. There's a braised beef cheek. And because it's Toronto, uh, there's a pulled pork 
uh, bond me because you can't <laughs> go anywhere in Toronto without having a pulled pork sandwich uh, thrust in your direction. Uh, and even more fusionally, uh, my favorite thing from Bon Me Boys is not one of their Bon Me, although this is not a critique of their Bon Me, but praise of their sweet potato poutine with kimchi. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, has, uh, also has duck confit on it. And has nothing to do with Bon Me whatsoever. I will say that um, uh, one of the good Bon Me's in my experience, if you are not uh, in Argyle Street in Chicago or at uh, the Bon Me Boys in Toronto, if you're in Columbus... The North Market has the Land Viet, which does a great banh mi for what seems like practically no money. And uh, I'm reliably one and a half banh mi hungry whenever I uh, go to the Land Viet. So the other half gets devoured later on during the show when I'm at Origins. But if you're in Columbus and you're at the North Market, drop by the Land Viet and enjoy a lovely banh mi. Right. And if you want to be uh, up for a couple of days, uh, be sure to also have a Café Suda uh, with your banh mi. <laughs> That is the uh, delicious and, uh, shall we say, invigorating uh, Vietnamese coffee. And it is uh, that 1914 yeah. opening of the uh, German uh, food warehouses that creates the uh, availability of sweetened condensed milk. Uh, and uh, sweetened condensed milk, of course, is the secret weapon slash secret ingredient of uh, Café Suda. So now that we've made you all uh, hunger for banh mi and thirst for Café Suda, we're going to leave you in the lurch by heading to yet another segment. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This players-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agency that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's Time Machine. That, of course, is the uh, vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into time to bend, fold, spindle, and yes, even mutilate it. And this time, Patreon backer Rick Neal, our uh, esteemed pal, has an esteemed question for us, and that is Jack Parsons, L. Ron Hubbard, the Babylon working. What was up with all that? Uh, and there's a second part of that question, but I think that's already a lot to chew on. So, Ken, where do you want to start chewing? Uh, man, Jack Parsons, uh, what I, where I will begin by starting to chew is to say there are now at least two biographies of Jack Parsons that are out. Um, my favorite, and I think the best one, is by John Carter, believe it or not, not the Martian warlord that I know of, um, called Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons. It's from the good people at Feral House. And, uh, there was another, uh, by George Pendle called Strange Angel, which is also good, but, my theory is if you can only get one, get John Carter's because Feral House puts together a lovely book. And this was um, uh, one of the 
One of the first and best. Uh, the, the story of Parsons and Alistair Crowley and um, uh, the Babylon working got tied up with another friend of the show, L. Ron Hubbard. And it's very rare that a story with Alistair Crowley in it has him as the second biggest charlatan. But there you go. <laughs> um, and that got blown open by some reporting, I think, in the 70s or 80s that someone wrote a book. Uh, uh, a guy named, I think, Bent Corridan wrote a, a, a series of essays about, uh, hey, remember L. Ron Hubbard? And when he was doing black magic in the desert with rocket scientist Jack Parsons and Aleister Crowley was involved. Um, and uh, there was a great foo-for-ah and the Scientologists tried to sue him and there was a uh, whatnot. But it turns out, guess what? Uh, Aleister Crowley uh, is running the uh, um, OTO, uh, the Ordo Temporal or Templi Orientalists, from his sick bed, basically, in England, and collecting a check from uh, chapters around the world. The only chapter that I think is bothering to send him a check is the chapter that is run by rocket scientist Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons is one of the people who um, helps... Theodore von Karman invents solid rocket fuel. He is a... Um, uh, In his even younger days, a hardcore Marxist? He is, a, he is a hardcore all kinds of things. He is a left anarchist, I think, of uh, is his brand of market Marxism. And he is a... Um, uh, because he was he's a strong libertarian politically in Southern California in the 1940s and 30s, which is how he meets his friend, left libertarian Robert Heinlein, who is a member of the Science Fiction Society in Los Angeles. And Jack Parsons and Robert Heinlein hang out at Parsons House and at Heinlein's house and at uh, lunch counters all over the Southland. So everyone you want to know is involved in Jack Parsons' life. And Parsons uh, is, uh, he comes from money. He, he's born, by the way, Marvel Whiteside Parsons. So if you want to know why he changed it to Jack, it's trying to explain that, no, I'm not Captain Marvel. Ha, ha, yeah. ha. Let, if, let, let's move that into subtext. From let's text. move that into subtext. So he is out uh, building rockets in the, in the Arroyo Seco in the desert. And then, because he knows how cool that desert is, he goes out and does magical workings there because he is a Crowleyite. And he has he has his little commune around him of, of people who want to mooch off him and, and live in his house. And eventually, hearing that there is mooching to be done, L. Ron Hubbard shows up. Uh, he has <laughs> um, been uh, demobbed from the Navy. Uh, he went uh, he, he served during the war. He comes back. He's full of stories about he personally single handedly won the war. He's a big character full of um, a, a natural born storyteller. Everyone who ever met him said that he could tell you a story that you couldn't tell if it actually happened to him or if it was him just recycling one of his pulp stories. He was legendarily prolific. Uh, he could write. Um, uh, what was it? Ten thousand words in a day and uh, never strike out one of them. Uh, and just rip it off and send it in. And back in the day when you could make money as a pulp writer, he was able then to buy drinks, which is another way to become popular. So he's he's quite the guy. Um, he shows up in this magical commune and at some point discovers that Parsons' wife, Betty, is less than super happy with a husband who believes in anarchism, rocket uh, explosions, free love, and Satan, and begins to work his wiles on Betty Parsons. Um, he does not, he may actually have done the old Edward Kelly, the angels want us to swap wives bit, but, uh, uh, for Jack, whatever Jack reason, might have not have required a lot of convincing. Yes. Whatever, for whatever reason, he convinces Parsons to invest $20,000 in, I think it was a boat, uh, building company in Florida. That might have required convincing that he, L. Ron Hubbard would, uh, 
go over and because he was in the Navy and knew all about boat building would, would run. And if he just had the $20,000, we could have a thing and I'd put in the sweat equity and you put in the money and Jack Parsons in one or another drug or Satan induced haze says, sure, wakes up and discovers that his wife and all of his money are missing and in Florida with L. Ron Hubbard. And this causes him not to doubt the power of Satan, but to say, I'm obviously not embracing Crowleyan magic strong enough. So what I'm going to do to turn my life around is is I'm going to create a magical child, a moon child, uh, by the Babylon working. And um, uh, sort of his magical girlfriend was involved in it. But then another lady showed up on the uh, porch right after they'd done a summoning to summon the woman clothed in the sun. And um, an attractive up-for-anything redhead shows up on your porch after you do a workening. That must be the woman clothed by the sun. They go out to the desert to try and create a moon child, which would be the sort of Crowleyan Christ figure that would bring about the uh, the age of Horus and, uh, and welcome the world. And the actual, you know, facts on the ground are sort of one way or the other as to whether or not L. Ron Hubbard is right there in the mix making moon children or whether... The moon childrening is after Hubbard has, has um, scampered off. So, so you know, whether or not L. Ron Hubbard is actually working the will of Satan on the earth, open-minded people can disagree, I think. Well, if there's ambiguity in the story, yes. clearly it is because of the second part of Rick's question. Right. Uh, did Time Incorporated have to intervene to prevent the birth of the moon child? Oh, hells yes. Stopping Antichrists is is in the mix. It's 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 in the mission profiles. Um, uh, prevent Hitler. Stop the Antichrist. It's it it's a list. It's a list of stuff. And the simple way to do that was just to mess with the ritual so that all that happened was a great deal of ugly recriminations and Parsons' life falling apart, which is indeed what happened. Right. And uh, this seems like a group of people who could be plied with drink. It uh, does. Did, did you so ply them? <laughs> um, the, 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 the only tough part is to get them to stop doing psilocybin long enough and mescaline long enough for me to ply them with drink. Uh, but yes, uh, plying is, is super simple. Um, oh, the, the woman clothed by the sun is, is named Marjorie Cameron, by the way, uh, in case you were wondering. A, a good sensible Scots name. It, it is. It's sensible in the sense of, I can mooch off this guy. <laughs> so the wonderful world of moon children is such that if you mess with any of the little magical precursors, you're not going to have a magical moon child. It's just going to either be a regular baby or not even that. And that's what happened. And I did indeed. Um, but this is not the toughest infiltration job I've ever had to pull. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, now, uh, I suppose there's all sorts of broader questions about... Uh, what the hell? <laughs> the, the introduction to the, the mythos of the supernatural. Although I suppose in the, in the Garfield assassination story, there were zombies. So uh, we're moving... Toward a, a broader and broader time incorporated mythos here, but uh, w- what else did you? Uh, well, and, and don't forget the Porlock working that me and Coleridge did. Right. So, what uh, surprised you uh, the most about meeting this crew in person? And uh, was Hubbard there, or had he already abs- absconded? Oh, Hubbard was there. Um, that was the that was the only trick because Elron Hubbard, you know, uh, the game knows game, as they say. So it was it's it's sort of a, a sensitive uh, dance to make sure that I could go back in time with Hubbard's own stories 
to um uh, break to to shut him down conversationally. So he would start talking about his time trapping bears in the Yukon, and I could then come in and say, "Oh yeah, I remember that was the story that you wrote in Unknown Worlds in such and such." He's like, <laughs> "Yeah, that's what I meant to say." So he was simultaneously flattered and annoyed. Exactly. That's that's a skill that I have, as you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have seen that. <laughs> you have seen that happen. So 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 the surprising thing is is something that's not super surprising, but is is something that maybe people don't get is that uh, Jack Parsons was movie star good looking. He was crazily attract. He's a he's an overbuilt character. This is a guy uh, speaking of noir who is so good looking, skilled, talented, and rich that the universe has to conspire to pull him down if noir philosophy is true. You have to and, create new attributes in order to give him a dump stat yes. because. Uh, charisma is clearly not his dump stat. Per- perhaps credulity. Credulity is his dump stat. Or skepticism. Yes. He had a low rating in skepticism. Yes. Um, uh, so he um, he also almost wound up building the rocket system for the Israeli government, but uh, he his communist buddies uh, managed to put the kibosh on that because uh, Huac is throwing up a bunch of uh, you know aren't you some sort of Satanist House communist? American Activities Committee uh, right. of the yes. Senate or the, House? the well the House Committee right. is hence the H in Huac oh, right. are asking a bunch of questions and at the time that they ask those questions Parsons has um, well he has many excellent answers but they're not the ones Huac wants to hear nor are they the ones the Israeli government wants to hear he winds up stealing rocket technology from his old employers. Uh, in an attempt to sell that to the Israelis, the Israelis say, this is all getting horribly dodgy. We don't want any part of that. But a world in which Jack Parsons goes to Israel, um, gets into the Kabbalah instead of crazy Crowleyan Kabbalah, and um, uh, tries to sort of, you know, he's still probably trouble, but at least he's someone else's trouble, and he's building an Israeli rocket program. I think that would be kind of a fun alternate world, and I've petitioned Time Incorporated to let me do that instead of having him mysteriously blown up in a mysterious exploit explosion in which no body was found in 1952. Uh, but nope, they wanted to recruit him and send him to, uh, to do other stuff because well, talk about a guy whose time incorporated material. Did he perhaps uh, retroactively have a hand in constructing the time machine and went back in time to blow him up? Can't, can't say that he did or didn't. That's, uh, that's beyond anyone's clearance. That's how right. they do that. But there is a rocket on the time machine. I will tell you that. Um, and, and can, of course, uh, if people want to know, uh, more of the story than Time Incorporated is willing to say, they can uh, find all about it in an exciting Trail of Cthulhu scenario. Indeed they can. The Big Hoodoo, written by scenario master uh, Bill White, and based not just on the life of Jack Parsons, not just on uh, books like John Carter's Sex and Rockets, but on a novel by Anthony Boucher called Rocket to the Morgue, or Rocket Ship to the Morgue, in which a uh, disguised version of all of these characters appear to investigate the death of John Parsons, which had not yet happened at the time Anthony Boucher wrote his novel. So speaking of things Time Incorporated can't tell you, that's something Time Incorporated can't tell you, but I recommend reading that novel and then playing Bill White's scenario, The Big Hoodoo, in which you can play Robert Heinlein or Anthony Boucher or Philip K. Dick or any number of exciting uh, characters from around that time to investigate the mysterious death of John Whiteside Parsons. Well, now that we've reached the limits of what Time Incorporated is willing to tell us, I guess it's time for us to uh, hop in our own time machine and uh, head forward to next week, when once again we'll have another exciting podcast for you all, full of, uh, I don't know, talking dogs, sandwiches, uh, elaborate rules, uh, variations, you know, the usual stuff. So see you next week, everybody.
stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Grass. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such luminaries as... Andrew Collins. Horatio Rutkowski. Joshua Hillerup. Brent Brown. And Peter Nix. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>